Hello and welcome to the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast episode 18 and it's all about hazard-based planning today. Welcome to the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast where we are building profitable food businesses one product, one process, one thought at a time. Now here's your host, Dr. Michelle Fannensteel. Hello, my fellow foodpreneurs. It is another great day to be recording a podcast, and I'm actually going to start off this morning uh, and ask everybody who listens to this to go onto your podcast listening method of choice and leave me a five-star review and share the podcast, man. There are so many people getting so much benefit out of it. I love the emails that I get and the people who could like come up and talk to me when I'm at conferences about the podcast and if you go leave a five-star review it actually means that more people can benefit because it changes like the algorithm and and that sort of stuff so I'd love it if you could go do that it makes a really super big difference in getting the podcast out there and getting all this information out there so that smallholder food businesses can put their amazing food out in the out in the universe and we can be the change that we want to see in our food systems. <laughs> you know, and as I was uh, working on this podcast this week, I was actually at a food policy conference here in the Northeast. I work with the Northeast Center to Advance Food Safety, which is this FDA-granted organization based out of Chris Callahan's group at UVM. And we were talking about the preventive controls rule and how do we get people to understand what it is how do we do the education around it and believe it or not when i volunteered that i was going to be covering the difference between preventive controls and HACCP and hazards and all that sort of stuff on the podcast this week i think i'm the only person out there doing this work and bringing it to a larger audience and so the, you know, like, frankly, the, the FDA kind of <laughs> depends on me doing this work, which is funny if you think about it. So if you find this podcast worth sharing and full of good information, there are people out there who really need this information so that they can build their businesses. And I would just absolutely love for you to share it. And the reason is, is because... You know, I get the sentence, hey, Doc, can you write me a HACCP plan? So many, I mean, like, I get that question multiple times a week, if not multiple times a day. And the answer is totally yes, I can write you a HACCP plan. But guess what, folks? Oftentimes, that's the wrong question. So let's today talk about what that right question actually is. And the right question is actually do I need a HACCP plan? And the answer is, well, maybe. And that's what we're going to cover in the podcast. Not everyone needs or wants a HACCP plan. And why is that? Well, once you know if you need one, then you can make a decision from a clean place in your head to actually go and write one. And get this, when you do that, you'll probably actually get it written. 
What if you could feel like you know where you are in your hazard-based planning and HACCP planning or preventive controls? Imagine how much better you'll sleep because you'll actually know how you're controlling your hazards. Because I promise you, if you make food, you have hazards you need to consider. Whether you're cooking cannabis butter in your kitchen for your clients, and yes, that's legal here in Maine, or you're making literally tons of salad every day. Because there is so much confusion out there. This podcast today is all about standing in your truth of where your business is because not everybody needs a hazard-based plan and sometimes you need so much more than just a HACCP. So we're going to work on standing in our truth. That's what we do here at the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute because truth creates wealth. So let's use the hazard-based planning process to actually go create wealth in our businesses. So where do we actually start with that? Well, let's start with the hazards. Um, What are the hazards? They are the physical, chemical, and microbial things that can go wrong with your food. There's a whole history out there on how we as food scientists lighted on these three particular areas. But mostly it's because if you think about it, there are really good ways to think about how people are harmed by food. So let's break them down. Physical hazards can break your teeth, cause cuts in your mouth, or in some cases, cause your throat to catch and choking hazards, okay? Chemical hazards, well, these are probably the hardest to define. They are substances that are like either naturally occurring or added to the food that causes harm. Allergens, which are naturally occurring and are the most common hazard that that companies actually have to address. So allergens are chemical hazards and you'll hear me say this a couple of more times I think in this podcast. uh, Allergens are chemical hazards and allergens are the most common hazard uh, that companies have to address. Whether you need a HACCP plan or other kind of hazard-based plan, you absolutely must understand how you control and, if necessary, label for allergens in your plant. This is a super big deal. So finally, microbial hazards. These are what most people think about when it comes to foodborne illness, but not actually what causes the most recalls. What causes the most recalls would, you know, be allergens, (laughs) but microbial hazards are the parasites, viruses, and bacteria that come to us in our foods and make us sick. Many of these, not all of these, come from animals. The word for that is zoonotic. So when we talk about these, many of them have an animal origin like trichinellosis. That's a parasite that comes to our food from animals. Um, Campylobacter is a a microbial hazard. Um, And and it's a bacteria, I suppose. These are all microbial hazards. And then, you know, viruses, we think about hepatitis A or norovirus. Those are probably the two most common ones. All right, so now that we know what hazards are, let me clear a few things up for you. No matter what your business size, whether you're a catering truck or the biggest USDA plant in the country, you absolutely, uh, no questions asked, must control for food safety hazards. And why is that? Because frankly, folks, you cannot make people sick with your food. It is that simple. 
Now, how you go about doing that, what paperwork you need, who inspects you, and who you report to are different, but the basic premise is the same. So let's start small and move up in size, okay? So the smallest, really, of our commercial food production facilities are called cottage kitchens. These are all regulated at the local level, and let's talk about what you can make in your cottage kitchen. It's completely dependent on those hazards we just talked about and which hazards are associated with your product. Different states have different regulations, so you're going to want to Google cottage kitchen laws and your state name to find out what you can make in a cottage kitchen in your state. When you cook in a cottage kitchen, your products are necessarily limited in scope in where you can sell them, and that's the point. You can't make much, you can't reach that far, and if something goes dramatically wrong, the damage is fairly limited. It's not completely eliminated, though, folks. <laughs> All right. Next, we have commercial kitchens and other types of maker spaces, shared spaces, and that sort of thing. Many times, these are regulated differently across different states. Some have to register with the Department of Ag, some don't. Most will get an Ag inspector and a restaurant inspector. The businesses that produce here are smaller in scope than a fully-fledged manufacturing space. Butcher shops and other retail establishments are also generally in this category, and HACCP plans can be required here for various kinds of reduced oxygen packaging and what we call sous vide cooking. Also, curing meats at the retail level can require in-depth HACCP planning, but again, that can be very state-dependent, and in some states, it's actually also county-dependent, and yes, I'm looking at you, Pennsylvania. Finally, we have private manufacturing spaces. These facilities may be state or federally regulated, depending on what they make and what agreements your state has made with the federal government. It's at this level that most HACCP and hazard-based planning comes into play. And why does it matter whether you're regulated at the local level or the federal, or the federal level? Well, that's because it's where the various laws come into your life. If you're in a cottage kitchen, you're regulated under your local food code, and as you get bigger, you'll be regulated by the state and then by the feds. And by local food code, I mean whatever laws your state or county has adopted in order to regulate something as small as a cottage kitchen. But that all said, there is absolutely one thing in common with all of those regulations. Good manufacturing practices. Uh, no matter what food you make, you must follow these. All states adopt good manufacturing practices in one way or another, and they are reflected and actually tighter in the food code because of how the food code regulates food. So what I want you to do is I want you to go back to episode two and listen to the good manufacturing practices episode, and so you can learn about what all the GMPs are. GMPs are how most small processors create the conditions to create safe food, and I want to emphasize these are not a hazard control plan. The hazard control planning comes next. Those plans are either HACCP plans or a preventive controls plan or HARP-C plan that some people call it. So let's talk about the alphabet soup. You know, I, you know it's funny, I come from uh, the Army, and as we like to joke, the Army is the only organization that can make a three-letter acronym for a three-letter word. So we don't call it a car, we call it a personally owned vehicle. 
So anyway, so HACCP, let's start there. HACCP does not in fact stand for have a cup of coffee and pray. It stands for hazard analysis for critical control points. And HACCPs are mandatory in the following circumstances. USDA inspected meat and poultry companies, all fisheries wholesalers. And in most retail establishments who use reduced oxygen packaging and sous vide cooking. And so how about a preventive controls plan? Well, that's mandatory for wholesalers who make more than a million dollars a year and are regulated by the FDA under the Food Safety Modernization Act. So that means not the people who uh, have scheduled processes. So you're making canned food or acidified canned food. You're not making nutritional supplements or baby food or anything like that, okay? So that's a harp c or hazard and risk-based preventive controls plan or a preventive controls plan or an FDA parlance of food safety plan, which is not confusing at all, I say with great sarcasm in my voice. So these preventive controls plans, what I want to emphasize is if you are under the million dollar mark, you may not need a documented preventive controls plan. However, you still must provide the FDA documentation on how you control for hazards, okay? And if you have questions about that, Cooperative Extension stands ready to help you. So Google Cooperative Extension and your county and find your local Cooperative Extension agent, and they will tell you what you have to fill out for your state, for the FDA, if you're under that $1 million mark, because I guarantee you, you must control for hazards, whether you document it in a preventive controls plan or a HACCP plan or not, okay? So now, if you don't fall into any of those categories, like I just explained, then the government doesn't require you to have a documented hazard-based plan. But, and this is a big but, if you want to get to a third-party audit to sell to your target market, you're probably going to want and need a HACCP plan. SQF and BRC are both HACCP-based audits. Those are the probably largest uh, global food safety initiative audits. And so even if you have an FDA preventive controls plan, you are going to need to add some HACCP elements to it. And it is not as complicated as it sounds, I promise. Um, an awful lot of the work is identical and it's just some language changes. The biggest difference is going to be in how you implement sanitation and allergen control and how you bring products in. Under a preventive controls plan, you basically can write sanitation, allergens, and supply chain as a critical control point. And that requires further discussion, I promise. And in a regular HACCP plan, all of those would basically be part of your prerequisite plans. I promise, I know it sounds complicated, but it does all flow together. And the steps of the actual planning process are pretty much the same. So I'm going to cover HACCP in depth, but you can take almost all of what I am saying and apply it to preventive controls. So what is HACCP? HACCP is a written food safety systems 
that uses a preventive control, a, a preventive approach <laughs> to control for biological, physical, and chemical hazards in food production. It's actually a 12-step program <laughs> that includes identifying the potential hazards and points in production at which they might occur, and we call these critical control points. We identify the management chain of command and the prerequisite programs with the standard operating procedures that address sanitation, pest control, equipment maintenance, approved supplier programs, maybe thermometer calibrations, personal hygiene plans, and, and recall instructions. HACCP was developed in the 1960s by NASA to ensure that food was safe for spaceflight, actually. And since then, it's been adopted by many agencies as the preferred means of food safety prevention. HACCP plans are mandatory, like I said, in production of meat, seafood, and juice, and many distributors and retail stores also require HACCP or preventive controls planning for all of their products, so you're going to want to get the specifications to, of the people who you're actually selling to, okay? The most important thing to understand about HACCP planning is that each HACCP plan or preventive controls plan is a living document that must be updated to reflect the practices currently in place in a production facility. A HACCP plan is specific and concrete and can only be written when a process is in place. Steps four and five that I'm going to go over must be accurate and implemented before the rest of the plan can be written. And there are a variety of SOPs that are considered prerequisites to a HACCP plan, but again, these must reflect what's actually occurring in the plant. And so what I want to point out there is it is totally possible to go out there on the internet and Google HACCP plan and whatever your product is. And at best, at best, that will get you 50% of the way there. Even when I write HACCP plans and we start with the template HACCP plans that, you know, my members have access to over in the power group, it's at best 50% of the way there, which is, of course, why we have the power group, because then you, like, ask questions and get the rest of the way there, right? So let's go over that 12 steps of HACCP, and I do say this jokingly, that it's a 12-step team. So the first step is create the food safety team. So this is generally compromised of an owner, a QA manager, which often in small plants is the owner, <laughs> plant manager and and I really like someone who has no connection to management who works on the floor it's best practice to have an uneven number of team members and they all must have completed HACCP training now it doesn't have to be certified HACCP training somebody has to have certified HACCP training uh, but on-the-job training works as long as it's documented all right so that's step one step two is describe the food in great detail You've got to list all the ingredients, all the packaging, all the brand names. Do the very best that you can to get to a specification, okay? You've got to describe the intended consumer and how they are actually going to consume the food, okay? You must know how your consumers consume your food. And if they consume your food raw, you've basically got to treat it as a ready-to-eat product because that's how the marketplace treats it. All right, you've got to include where they buy the product. Do they buy it retail? Do they buy it wholesale? Do they buy it over the internet? How is the product transported to them? How do they store it? And how are they going to use it? Like I said, cooked. Are they going to eat it straight from the package? What do they do with your food? It's very important to know this. All right, step four, and this part can be super difficult, and this one's hard to do over a podcast, <laughs> but you can Google process flow diagrams and get the, get the general idea. But you've got to diagram out the process flow from receiving to shipping. And basically, I tell people, 
the, the, its theme and variations on the following process. We receive stuff. We store stuff. We process stuff. So whatever it is that you make, that's where you make it. And processing is generally many, many steps. We package stuff, we put it in finished product storage, and we put it into the distribution chain, all right? You are theme and variations on that type of process flow diagram. And a technical note, I do process flow diagramming in PowerPoint or Google Slides because that is the easiest way to draw all those little boxes and arrows. I have been doing this for a long time. I've tried it in Word. I've tried it in Excel. Of course, the easiest thing is to draw it on a piece of paper, but you know, that can be hard to share. <laughs> so uh, PowerPoint or Google Slides. What you need to then do, which is step five, which you got to walk through your plant with the diagram to make sure that it accurately describes your process. Your diagram should be detailed and accurate enough that someone who doesn't know your facility and process should be able to follow it. The diagram's got to be signed and dated and updated anytime the process is changed, even when minuscule changes are made, they've got to be signed in. Okay, next, conduct a hazard analysis. So this is step six. Now, when I teach HACCP classes, and I, you can take my online HACCP class, and I can come to you and teach HACCP classes, and I teach general HACCP classes every so often. We actually have a meat and poultry HACCP class coming up in New York City in May. Um, so I'll start talking about that. So uh, we'll probably start advertising it in the next couple of weeks. But I preload steps one through six. Because when you do steps one through six correctly, everything else is easier, okay? So step six, which is where you have to spend the most time after, after your process flow diagram. If you get your process flow diagram wrong, everything's wrong. So get that right and then move on to a hazard analysis. And a hazard analysis is a two-step process that collects information on the potential physical, chemical, and biological things that can go wrong with your food, and then evaluates how likely they are to occur during the process. So over in HACCP, we say, is it reasonably likely to occur? And over in preventive controls, we say, is it a known or reasonably foreseeable hazard? If it's either reasonably likely or known or reasonably foreseeable, you, my friend, have a critical control point, which we'll get to in the next couple of steps. Some of the questions that get answered during a hazardous hazard analysis are, are the hazards coming in with the ingredients of the product? What are the physical characteristics of the product that promote or control hazards such as preservatives, water activity, pH? During processing, what do you do that contributes or controls for hazards? So cooking controls for a lot of hazards, not all of them. How does the facility and the equipment contribute to or control for hazards? And what safety controls are in place? Are there allergens present? And if so, what is the control plan or the preventive control plan? And how can packaging and labeling contribute to pathogen control? All right, now I want to add one footnote for my fisheries HACCP friends. When you write a fisheries HACCP, you will actually end up answering all of these questions. However, you only get to answer these questions the way the FDA tells you to answer them. Okay, so what that means is, is you've got to go to chapter three in the fisheries hazard guide. You've got to do your 
hazards based on what kind of fish you are producing. So we call those species related hazards. And then you go to the second part of chapter three and you look at your process related hazards. You must use those. If you have questions about it, submit a question to the podcast and I'll answer it. But you have got to use those the way the FDA has laid it out for you in the, in the fisheries hazard guide. All right, so step seven, you're going to determine a critical control point. If a hazard is determined to be significant and it is reasonably likely to occur, known or reasonably foreseeable, it must be written in as a critical control point or a preventive control. This is defined as a step which control measures can be applied and is essential to prevent or eliminate a food safety hazard or reduce it to an acceptable level. So once we figured out all of those preventive controls or CCP points, we're going to set our critical limits. And critical limits are defined as a maximum or minimum value at which a biological, chemical, or physical parameter must be controlled at a critical control point to prevent, eliminate, or reduce to an acceptable level the occurrence of a food safety hazard. And I know that all sounds crazy, but basically what that means is, is you've got to have something that is specific and measurable that lets you know whether or not you controlled the hazard. Okay? And over in a preventive controls plan, you know, things are specific and measurable within defined terms. So if you have a sanitation preventive control, it's specific and measurable to look at your table and see whether or not it's clean. It is specific and measurable to determine whether or not your supply chain has a third-party audit that actually controls for food safety hazards. The essential point of these critical limits is that they must be measurable and they may be set by your regulatory authority in many cases, that's the USDA or, uh, or the FDA. And if you are doing retail food code HACCP, it's actually written into your food code. Do not argue with them. I have tried. Don't do it. <laughs> okay. Now you've got to establish monitoring procedures. This is step nine. I promise we're almost there. Stick with me. All right. So once your critical limits are set, your procedures must be established for monitoring the critical control points to determine and document whether your critical limits are being met. So established monitoring procedures means write it down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> get some make sheets, get some production planning, write down whether or not things met their critical limits. Hmm. Next, we're going to talk about what happens when goes wrong, when things go wrong, and that's establishing corrective actions. So you might want to go back and listen to uh, the establishing corrective actions uh, uh, podcast that I did a little bit ago deviations from a critical control point and critical limit, it's likely to occur at some point, folks, and the appropriate procedures must be established to address the problem before the problem happens. And we call these corrective actions. Okay, so go listen to that. Go listen to that podcast because it covers it in way more detail than I'm covering it right now. All right, next, verification and then validation. I also cover this in other podcasts. But the two objectives of this step are, one, that the plan is adequate to control the hazards associated with the product when the plan's implemented correctly, and that the HACCP system or the preventive control system is actually operating according to the plan. And then finally, and it's funny, this is step 12, but when I teach HACCP, I teach this first. Record keeping. All right, record keeping is essential to implementing the HACCP plan. If you did not write it down, I promise you, my friends, it did not happen. 
Records are the written evidence that document and documentation and activities uh, were done and that you have documented those activities to preserve it in a lasting form. In addition, I really want to emphasize that tampering with or changing logs in a USDA or FDA or food code monitored setting is a criminal offense. It's a felony, folks, to go back and change your records if you're USDA or FDA. And I say this because I have, pe I have had clients try and pull that shit on me. Don't do it. All right, now I want to warn you that in the land of reality, which is where I prefer to live, <laughs> some of the following things happen. One, your regulatory agency, like your health department, will tell you what your CCPs are. Do not argue with them. It is useless. I have tried. So that means you'll go through the hazard analysis and come to the conclusions that they have come to. Yes, it is a farce. And if you want to get your plan passed, you'll just do it. These, I... You know, this is a, a perennial argument of mine. The state should just stop calling these HACCP plans because they aren't. They like calling them HACCP plans for reasons that escape me, but they're not HACCP plans. Your regulatory agency, like the USDA, will disagree with you on your hazard analysis. This happens to me across every single district. You basically then have to keep adjusting your hazard analysis until your HACCP gets approved. In my business, this leads to fun outcomes of the same product getting different CCPs in different USDA districts. It's totally awesome and not at all confusing. Okay, I know this can be overwhelming, and so what I want you to do is go to www.sfbdi.com episode 18 and grab the downloads that walk you through all of this. And then if you want, you can also get our video series that walks through the basics of how we do food safety here at SFBDI and Darago Food Safety. The series is free, it gets emailed to you, and I put it out there because I really desperately want people to have this information so that they can create wealth in their businesses. I know this can be overwhelming. I really, really, really do. I know it's easier not to do anything at all. But I want to ask you, don't succumb to that. Building the business of your dreams means showing up. It means showing up to this, even if it means just getting your food safety team together. You can do this. Start today, folks. Hey, foodpreneurs. Have you thought about joining that power group and you're not really sure how to do it as a corporation? Well, I have super news for you. Starting this month, we are actually having corporate subscriptions to the power group where up to five people can join the power group. Y'all get workbooks, you get access to the membership site, access to the calls, emails to me to ask questions uh, so that you can come together and grow as a group. And I'm offering this super amazing value at just like, I mean, 50% off of the regular price. So five people from your corporation can join up with the power group for only $5.97 a month. It's super amazing. I would love to see you there. And if you want to join up, you can go to www.sfbdi.com slash power group and click on that second button on the page that says I'm interested in a corporate subscription and it'll take you right through there. Thanks so much. Have a beautiful day. 
You've been listening to Dr. Michelle Fannin-Steele on the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast. We hope you loved the show. For more information and show notes, please find us at sfbdi.com. Thanks for listening.